And while they're doing that, I'd ask that you would just turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. 11 through 16. Um, next week we're actually going to be revisiting verse 16 because it's just that much of an important verse. So a little bit of heads up there. This morning we're going to be looking, pressing on in our series uh, through the book of Galatians that we started at the beginning of the year. Well, timing is everything, isn't it? Uh, especially when you're in a marching band. Uh, I was a drum major. If you didn't know this, I was a drum major in high school. And as a drum major, I was responsible for leading our marching band, keeping time, conducting at the podi- on the podium at the front of the field. Uh, but before we ever started learning our music or before we ever learned the moves of our show, uh, we would begin every season learning how to march together. Marching might sound easy. After all, it is just walking, isn't it? But there's actually a lot of technique and skill that goes into it. Steps have to be measured so that you stay in formation. If uh, one person's step is longer than the other, you're just going to have a blob of people, not a crisp block that you're trying to have. Uh, when you march, you actually your foot has to roll just the right way so that the music you play sounds smooth and not choppy. And then the moves of each show are timed out. You only have so many steps to get from one position to the next. And sometimes you are trying to make it 15 to 20 yards at about 16 beats, which is walking pretty fast, especially if it's one of the short flutes. That's always fun. Well, all of that has to be automatic because there are other things that you're supposed to pay attention to in the middle of a show. Uh, like playing on cue, making sure your instrument is pointed the right direction, and by all means not getting run over by that tuba player who's marching backwards right at you. So whether you're marching in a parade or a show, there is nothing more distracting than having one of your marchers marching out of time with the rest of the band. Uh, The point of the show is to have the whole band move as one entity, as one body. So when somebody is out of sync, and it's usually a freshman, all eyes go to them. And that will always lose you points in a competition, and it will always distract everybody from what's going on. The steps of a marching band need to be in sync with each other to the rhythm of the music. Otherwise, it's just a mob. And the steps of the church need to be in sync with each other in the gospel of grace. Now, even the best marchers can forget which foot they're supposed to be on. And in our passage this morning, Paul tells us about how the Apostle Peter got out of step with the gospel of grace. In the context of Paul's letter, this story really teaches us to rely on the gospel of Jesus Christ as our highest authority. And in the context of our own day and time, this passage is important for the way it clarifies what the gospel is, and for the warning it gives us about keeping a watch on our faith. And finally, for how it reveals that the power of Christ works in us to restore us when we fall. So let's begin by reading our text. If you would, I know we stand up and down quite a bit, but if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Please follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For, cer- for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, when Paul relayed this story to the churches in Galatia of how he opposed Peter to his face for the way he wandered from the truth. He wasn't trying to assert his own superior authority. He wasn't trying to make himself out to be a better apostle. He wasn't saying that he himself was without fault in his life or in his ministry. He was, on, he was rather, teaching them to rely on the authority of the gospel of grace, which he had received from Christ and which they had received from him. The main issue, as we've seen going through the book of Galatians, and was going on in the churches of Galatia, is that they were being led astray by false teachers who had infiltrated the church and had tried to draw them away from the true saving gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to adopt another gospel, a gospel of faith plus works, which could not save them, but which could only enslave them under the burden of the Mosaic law. The purpose of this letter was to call the churches of Galatia back to a pure gospel, a gospel of grace, a gospel which stands for all time as the only message by which men and women everywhere can be saved. Jesus is an exclusive Savior. He is exclusive because there is salvation in no one else. And he is exclusive because he excludes our acts from justifying us before God. It is Christ alone. The only way we can be found and counted righteous in the sight of God is when we are united by faith to him. The churches in Galatia needed to be brought back to this gospel tempo, just as Peter did when he was in Antioch. And so that brings us to consider the main idea of our text, which is simply this. Stay in step with the gospel of grace. Stay in step with the gospel of grace. In our passage, we see three ways that we are called as believers to stay in step with the gospel of grace. And there will be our three points this morning. First, we see that we are called to walk to the rhythm of the gospel of grace. We walk to the rhythm of the gospel of grace. Second, we hold fast to the convictions of grace. We hold fast to the convictions of grace. And finally, we live the gospel of grace out towards each other. We live the gospel of grace out towards each other. Well, first we want to look at what it means to be walking in the rhythm of grace. Uh, when I was a drum major, again, my, my band director, before I ever started conducting, made sure that I had a metronome. A metronome is a device that keeps beat. Uh, you can speed up and slow down and not even know it. So an elect uh, a metronome will tell you if you're off tempo, if you're out of sync. It's an important tool because every piece of music is written to be played at a specific tempo. 
And as I was learning the music we were going to be playing, I needed to learn that music to the tempo that it was meant to be played so that when it came to actually conducting the band, I was conducting at the right speed, and that way the rhythm would be right. Well, to, to, to this point in the book of Galatians, we've heard Paul talk a lot about the gospel of grace that he preached, how he received it, how he preached it, how it was even approved by the other apostles, though Paul stresses very strongly uh, how his ministry was not dependent on their approval since he had received that message and his commission to serve as an apostle from Christ himself. At this point in the letter, Paul is transitioning from answering objections that had been laid against him, accusations that had been leveled against him by the false teachers who were there in Galatia trying to draw these churches away. And he's switching from answering their uh, accusations now to actually dealing with what is the substance of the gospel and why is faith in Christ so important. The men troubling the churches in Galatia weren't questioning whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. They had accepted that. But they departed from the gospel of grace by telling the Galatians that they needed to take on the burden, the, the commands of the Mosaic law. They preached a different gospel that added works to grace, and thereby they preached a distorted gospel, a gospel that had no power to save. Paul's argument in verses 15 and 16 is that the law is of, of no advantage to anyone to make them righteous, since the only way to be counted righteous is through faith in Jesus Christ. So verses 15 and 16 are therefore arguably some of the most important verses in the whole book of Galatians. And so we're going to start there this morning because it's there that we get a sense of the rhythm of the gospel of grace. It's like that metronome that tells you how fast and how we're supposed to go. We need to get an ear for what the gospel is so that we can then bring our faith and our hope in tune with it. It's only then that we'll be able to see why it is and how it is that Peter got out of sync with it. Now, there are no quotation marks in Greek, which is the language that Paul used when he wrote this letter. So while these are uh, all of Paul's words, it's hard to know exactly which ones he spoke directly to Peter and which ones he wrote directly to the Galatians. So while the ESV uh, only puts quotation marks around verse 14, I think that you can make a very compelling argument that he actually said verses 15 and 16 to Peter as well. Now, that's a small detail, but I do think it's helpful uh, to us for making sense of, the who, of who the we is here in verse 15 when Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, what that means is, is simply that Peter and Paul were born into the blessings and into the curses of Abraham's line. They were heirs of the covenant that God had made with, his, with their fathers. They were recipients of the law and the prophets. Most of the Galatians, on the other hand, who received this letter were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They had been born outside of those covenant promises. They were lost in the darkness of their sins and had no idea. However, with all the advantages that Paul and Peter had as being born as Jews... Verse 16 indicates to us that neither of them ever thought that their salvation was their birthright, that they were saved just on the basis of who their parents were. Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. What Paul demonstrates to us there and what the gospel teaches us is that the problem of sin is a problem that blankets all of humanity. Even though God set the Jews apart to be his special people, to be a city on the hill where people from all over the world could come and see the glory of God, they were still infected with the same sinful condition that affects all of mankind, universal. God gave the law of Moses to Israel to show them how to live righteously and blamelessly before him. He taught them his ways, his standards. He called them to holiness. But the law was never capable of making a person righteous. Just as a measuring stick can only tell you whether or not you're tall enough to ride the roller coaster, the law can only judge whether or not you reach God's perfect standard of holiness. And because we are all, without exception, sinners, we all fall short of that standard. Peter and Paul understood that the works of the law had no power to make them righteous. So while they had inherited God's promises and his law, they knew that a person could not be justified in the sight of God by works, but could only be justified by faith in Christ. So, Paul says, we also, he's talking about him and and Peter, he says, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So if we are to get our fingers on the pulse of the gospel, we need to investigate two important terms that Paul uses here. The first word, the first term that we need to understand is the word justified. Justified. Now the word justify is a legal term, and it's used here, and this is a very technical way of saying this, it's used here forensically, which just means that it is, it is used as evidence. It is, a, it is something that on the basis of this, uh, you are pronounced innocent. Like you would be in a courtroom if a, if a judge looked at you and said, you are not guilty of the crimes of which you are being accused. To be justified means that the judge looks at you and he counts you as righteous. A judge does not have the ability to make a person righteous. Their job is simply to look at the evidence and to pronounce whether or not the person is innocent or guilty, and then to pronounce the sentence. Paul says, and he says that Peter also understood, that there was no saving advantage afforded to him or to Peter because of their Jewishness or because of their zeal for the law, because no man and no woman has ever been counted righteous in the sight of God on account of the works of the law, but that they are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, he's speaking of himself, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be counted righteous by him in faith. The standard of righteousness, according to Paul, the standard that he preached in the gospel, which he received from Christ, is something which we are only able to meet when we have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus meets that standard. And when we trust in him, his righteousness becomes ours. His innocence is transferred, imputed, counted to us when we believe in him. That is the way, Paul says, we can receive 
righteousness. That is the way we are justified. Now, the second important term that Paul uses here is the term works of the law. What are works of the law? Well, they are commands laid out in the law of Moses. Now, based on Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, it seems that there is little doubt that the people who were troubling the churches in Galatia were relying on their obedience to the law to have a right standing with God, and that they were trying to lead the the Galatians to do the same. But at this point in the letter, the works of the law refers to keeping, uh, refers to keeping the law's commands, not, not, not broadly to legalism, so to, to, so to speak. Paul is speaking very, um, very technically here about the law and its role and its inability to save us because of our inability to keep it. You cannot earn a title of innocence by keeping or doing the works of the law. You can only be counted righteous in the sight of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So with those two terms defined, there are three important things we need to understand about what Paul is saying about the rhythm of the gospel of Christ. The first thing that we need to see in what he's saying is that the only way we can be declared righteous by God is when we receive innocence from Christ through faith in him. Righteousness is something that we must receive. It is not native to us. It is not something that we can manufacture or earn. It is alien to us. Jesus has the righteousness that we need. It is inherent to him because he is the eternal son of God. He upheld that righteousness when he fulfilled the demands of the law through his perfect obedience as a man living here on earth. He was declared righteous by God when he rose from the dead. And now God has made him the source of all righteousness for all who believe, which is what we read in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. The gospel, the message of the gospel, the beating heart and the purpose of the gospel is to exalt Jesus in his glory by holding him up as the object of saving faith. That is what the gospel message is all about, exalting Jesus as our Savior. It, the gospel excludes and puts to shame every kind of human boasting. And it exalts Jesus as the king over all the earth. It exalts him as the new and better Adam who rescues, who perfects, who protects and rules to the excellence of his reign. Jesus is the reason God is just in forgiving sin and in counting sinners like you and like me as righteous. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. That's why any message that distorts this gospel of grace by adding works to it is considered an abomination. That is why it can't save. You, if you leave this, you've left the whole source of righteousness and the whole purpose of the gospel. The second thing we need to see about what Paul is laying here, out here when he talks about what this gospel is is that we need to see that since works of the law cannot make us righteous, our condition of acceptability before a holy God is not determined by our relation to it, but by our union with Christ. Now this gets at the heart of what was going on with the churches in Galatia. These false teachers were saying that in order to become part of the people of God, Gentiles had to come under the law. But clearly we see that the law cannot communicate any sort of innocence to us. Only faith in Christ can do that. 
That is why Paul says that they were preaching a different gospel, a distortion of the gospel, a damning gospel. Because while they were happy to say that Jesus suffered to atone for sin, they were, they, their hope, their real hope, and their teaching was, was to get others to hope in their own ability to keep the law as the means of securing an innocent sentence from God. Rather than embracing the freedom that Christ had purchased for them, they said, yes, Jesus is a great Savior, but I'll remain here in my shackles. And you should, do, you should do the same. I'll earn my way out of this prison. In doing so, in hoping in their own works, they were nullifying the saving work of Christ. Which is why Paul says that this gospel was such an abomination. Be- the third thing we need to see out of this is that because righteousness is received through faith, and because we are transformed by Jesus' work as it is applied to us in the union of that faith, the call of the gospel of grace is to totally rely on Jesus Christ for our salvation. It is 100%. Doug Moo captures the heart of what was at stake in Paul's argument when he says, Paul is not arguing that Gentiles should be included with Jews in the people of God. He is arguing rather that Jews should be included with Gentiles in the mass of ordinary humanity. Jews are sinners just like the Gentiles, with the radical implication that follows. Their obedience to the covenant stipulations cannot put them right with God. Only a total reliance on Christ by faith can do so. The gospel of grace teaches us two things. First, it teaches us that we can only be counted righteous in the sight of God because Jesus is righteous and because he came to remove our sin from us. The second thing it teaches us is that it teaches us to embrace the new identity that we have in him through faith. That means abandoning every other hope because nothing else can secure for us the righteous standing that we need before God, our judge. Walking to the rhythm of grace Walking to the rhythm of the gospel of grace means embracing that new identity, despairing of anything but Christ as the means by which we can hope to be found innocent in the sight of God. When we forget that, we start to think that righteousness is this sort of prize that we've got to earn or that our standing with God is based on what we have or haven't done. That is a false gospel, and yet you find it everywhere. Where people look at what they have done and say, well, God must think I'm a good person because I haven't done that, and I have done this. When Paul tells us that the reason, the only hope we have for any sort of innocence is because of what Christ has done and because of our union with him. Walking then in this gospel of grace means embracing that identity, committing to it whole with a whole heart. It's easy to get out of sync with the gospel of grace because there's something about trying to find some worth in ourselves to justify ourselves to God that appeals to us still. It's easy to do, and we have to be on guard because the shift from from, uh, embracing our union with Christ as our hope and pressing into the justification he's purchased for us on the cross and in this gospel, and shifting to a, instead to a gospel of works, can really be rather subtle. Which brings us to consider the second point uh, of Paul's account of how he confronted Peter when he wandered away from this gospel. 
So we've seen what it means to walk to the, the drumbeat of the grace of God. Second, we see that we're called to hold fast to the convictions of grace. In verse 11, Paul says, When Cephas came to Antioch, so this is in the storyline, the timeline that we've been working in. This is sometime after Paul had traveled to Jerusalem, which is the passage we looked at last week. And it's probably before the big council that we read about in Acts 15. So it's somewhere in that. So when Paul, when, when Paul says that when Cephas came to Antioch, he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, let's just take a moment here. Let that sink in for a second. This is Peter, okay? This is Petros, the rock, the guy that Paul recognized had been equipped in his ministry to the Jews the same way that Paul had been entrusted to go to the Gentiles. Okay, And now he's telling the, the, the Galatians that when Cephas, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Paul says, because he stood condemned. Now this is some shockingly strong language. But as we investigate the situation a little bit further, it becomes apparently very necessary. When Paul and Barnabas had traveled to Jerusalem, Peter had stood in agreement with them with their gospel. He had affirmed that the gospel of grace was the true gospel. He had even defended it from those who were trying to distract from it. But now, in Antioch, his actions preached a very different message, one that undermined the gospel of grace. That is why Paul says that Peter stood condemned. The problem in Antioch wasn't so much a formal theological debate. It wasn't the words that Peter used. The problem was the implications of what Peter did. In verse 12, Paul explains the situation. He says that while Peter was, was in Antioch, during his time there, he made no distinction between himself and the Gentile believers who were a part of the church there. He ate with them. He spent time with them. He apparently, according to verse 14, lived like them, whatever that means. Peter was happy to see himself while he was there as, a, as an equal heir with them of the same righteousness because they shared the same faith, one faith in one Lord. They had been united in one baptism of faith and they had shared together in the one ordinance of the Lord's Supper together with them. Paul was, Peter was living with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. But then Paul tells us that certain men from Jerusalem, men from James, the brother of Jesus, came to Antioch. I assume they came because they heard about the way Peter was living and what he was doing. And they had been sent to investigate to find out what on earth was going on. When they arrived, we're told that Peter caved. He separated himself from his Gentile brothers and sisters, fearing, Paul says, the circumcision party. Now, when you, this is a weird situation. And there's things going on that Paul doesn't care to give us all the details about. But we have to ask ourselves, who are these guys? How were they able to affect Peter and the other Jews like this? I think it's unlikely that these were the same people that tried to disrupt Paul's meeting with Peter and the other apostles that we read about in verse 4. Rather, I think that these were men sent from James uh, when, the word, when word reached Jerusalem about the way that Peter and the Jewish believers were associating so closely with Gentile believers. In the Roman Empire at this point, times were tough for Jewish people. 
And they were even tougher for Jewish Christians because they were excluded from, the, from rights of citizenship in the Roman Empire. They were also excluded from uh, being kept under the protection of the Jewish umbrella. They were seen as heretics. They were seen as wrong. And it was difficult. To make matters worse, there was a growing zealot movement within Jewish circles that insisted on setting up barriers between Jews and non-Jews. So when news of Peter's actions that he's living like a Gentile with the Gentiles, because he sees their unity of faith together, but he's living like them and and happy to do so. When news of this hits Jerusalem, uh, you can imagine it made things really tough for the church. We can't, we can't say for certain, because we're kind of reading into the situation, but it seems most likely that Peter's fear was that his association with these Gentile believers was going to affect or was affecting the Jews who were in Judea and how Christianity was being perceived there. Peter's fear led him to remove himself from close contact with other Gentile believers. In verse 13, Paul says that he and the rest of the Jewish believers acted hypocritically to the point that even the beloved Barnabas was led astray. Clearly, Peter, Barnabas, and the others believed a gospel of grace. They taught a gospel of grace. They preached a gospel of grace. But their actions were out of step with the truth they confessed. That's what led Paul to this confrontation with Peter to his face in front of everyone. He acted because he saw how Peter's actions had led others into error. He acted publicly because it was a public action. And he he, he confronted Peter and the others about how they were out of line, out of step with the truth. How they were acting hypocritically. How they were undermining the very message they preached and confessed. He, He confronted them because they were preaching one message with their mouth. And they were preaching a false gospel with their actions. And so they stood condemned in that error. Now I expect that Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jewish believers had good intentions for what they did. I I don't know for sure, but I expect that they were thinking specifically about how their actions in Antioch were affecting the way the gospel was being thought of in Jerusalem. And so they probably could justify to themselves that this was the right thing to do. Whatever reasons they had for for making sense of that separation, the reality was that it was dangerous and it was wrong. And so so Peter stood condemned, as Paul says, because his fear led him to compromise. He may have stood with the gospel that Paul had presented in Jerusalem, but in this moment, his actions preached something very different. A message that, in order to, that, that said that in order to really have fellowship with God and his people, in order to eat with me, you've got to become a Jew. You've got to embrace the standards, the yoke of this Mosaic law. Rather than keeping what Jesus said in John 4.22, that salvation is from the Jews, Peter's action said salvation is only for the Jews. And that's a false gospel. Peter was not in line, not in step with the truth of the gospel of grace. There is no advantage before the judgment seat of God. We have read, we understand, because now we know what the rhythm of grace is, right? We know that there's no advantage for Jew or Gentile before God on the basis of the works of the law. Because as Paul says in verses 15 and 16, no one is justified before God by anything other than faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Peter's actions 
didn't confirm that. What's more, because of his status, he led other faithful men, men like Barnabas, down a path of hypocrisy and error. Paul had to confront him openly as he did because the very unity, the very fabric of the church was being ripped in two and the purity of the gospel was on the line. You know, as a drum major, I learned pretty quickly that while I had been elected to and been technically put in charge of directing the band, the band almost always will follow what it hears more than what it sees. The loudest instrument on the field is the snare drum. And keeping the band on tempo takes a drum captain who knows what they're doing. Because if the drum line takes off on their own rhythm, the band will absolutely follow them. And no matter how hard I would swing my hands, there's nothing I could do about bringing that back into alignment. Nine times out of ten, the tempo of the drum line was going to determine what the tempo of the music was. So if the drum line followed my lead, we were all going to be on. But if they started doing their own thing, the whole band would get off. And it was an embarrassing disaster on a Friday night when something like that happened. Peter got off track when he started marching to the rhythm of a different gospel, which he had affirmed back in verses 1 through 10 which tells us that you can confess sound doctrine. You can write good blog articles. But if you're not careful to make sure that you are living your life according to the beat of this gospel of grace, you stand condemned the same way Peter did when he got out of sync. That is a huge warning. Because when I look at what Peter did, it's pretty subtle. It's pretty hard not to look at that and say, you know, maybe Peter made the right decision here. And Barnabas thought so. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the missionary to the Gentiles with Paul. If it can happen to them, it can happen to us. So as we've seen, as the church is being called to be guardians of grace, guardians of grace, guardians of the gospel of grace, don't, they, they don't just know the gospel intellectually. They live by it. It defines who they are. You ask them, you prick them, and they bleed gospel of grace. They make decisions that are driven by their conviction of the truth, that are driven out of the new identity they have in their union with Jesus. Peter's actions weren't in keeping with this gospel of grace, and he could have, if God had not put Paul in his way, done a lot of damage to the church. He may not have been preaching it from the pulpit, but by separating himself as he did from these Gentile believers, he was in effect telling them that if they really wanted to be one with him and one with the people of God, they had to become Jews. This was hypocritical, as Paul says, because Peter didn't even keep the law himself. In verse 14, Paul says, If you, though, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? What a disaster it would have been if God had not preserved Peter in the church against his error through this rebuke. You would have had potentially two factions, a, a, a Gentile faction and a Jewish faction, two separate churches, based on not, not on, based on the gospel, but based on a, another thing, a, div, a division that, that Christ had come to make one, one people. It's easy to see why Paul brings us up to the Galatians, isn't it? Because the situation going on in Antioch was not unlike what was happening now with the churches there. 
The gospel was under assault there, just as it had come under assault in Antioch. And so Paul reminds the Christians in Galatia, as he did Peter, that no one will be justified by works of the law, but they will only be found innocent in the sight of God when they are joined to Christ by faith. Paul did not want the Christians in Antioch or, now, as he writes, in Galatia, to forfeit the free gift of righteousness that Jesus had bought for them at the cost of his own blood. And so he forcefully opposed Peter in defense of the truth, and he forcefully opposed these false teachers who were trying to distract the churches in Galatia by calling them to a different rhythm of a different gospel. We stay in step with the rhythm of the gospel of grace when we hold fast to the truth, not just by saying what we believe, or that we are saying that we believe it, but also by the way we live. Paul's actions communicated the idea that, the, sorry, Peter's actions communicated the idea that the gospel of grace wasn't enough. How do you think these brothers and sisters felt when Peter, a man they had come to know and love, not just by reputation, but because they sat down and ate with him. They enjoyed his presence, his company. They shared their lives with him. And now he's abandoning them in the face of this pressure. How do you think they felt? I'm sure it made them feel like second-class citizens in the kingdom of Christ. I'm sure that it made them question whether or not their faith was really enough. If they couldn't be accepted by Peter, how, how, how on earth were they going to be accepted by Jesus? Maybe they started feeling like, maybe I'll hedge my bets. Maybe I will become Jewish and, and, and add to this gospel of grace and, and just go through these motions at least so that just in case I'm wrong, I'll still have this parachute. There was a disaster on the brink here. And it took a recall back to the gospel to hold fast, not just in what they preached, but in what they did. So friends, do not underestimate the example that you are to your families, to your co-workers, to your neighbors, and to your fellow church members. Our duty is to Christ. And that means holding fast to this gospel of grace, this gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It is so easy to let our guard down. It is so easy to be like Peter, who then, in his letter to the church, goes so far as to warn us in 2 Peter 3.17, Beloved! Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless men and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's call and Paul's call then, God's call to his church, is to strive to live with the integrity to be able to say to everyone around you, follow me as I follow Christ. There is no hope in anyone else. There is no way to be found righteous in anyone else. The gospel we speak, we must speak this gospel. The gospel we speak must be a gospel of grace. And the gospel we live, must li we must likewise preach. And we must preach that there is no name under heaven and no gospel under heaven by which men and women can be saved other than this gospel of Jesus Christ. So grace, we, we're called to walk to the rhythm of grace by holding fast to this in the way we speak and in the way we walk and live. Now that is a tall order. This brings us to our third point. That God gives us grace to walk in the way. I hope that the idea of going home to your families and looking at them and saying, 
follow me as I follow Christ feels overwhelming to you. I hope you feel your weakness. Because this isn't something you're expected to do, to do apart from the grace of God. And that's why there's good news here. We live out the gospel not just by hoping in salvation from sin, but in living holy lives. The grace of God is that pervasive. We can think of all we can all think of instances in our actions where our actions undermine the gospel that we've been called to proclaim. We can all think of instances when we were like Peter and Barnabas because we contradicted the gospel that we say we believe. This is the part of the good news where the gospel of grace shines forth. Because the gospel of grace confronts. The spirit working through the gospel convicts. The gospel corrects, but it also restores. The gospel is good news, not just because it tells us where we can be justified, but because it gives us grace to walk on the path of obedience to the truth. There is no end to this fountain of grace. Now the Bible, the Bible never shies away from telling us about the errors of our biblical heroes. Men like Peter, Barnabas, and even Paul And that's because God, for the glory of his Son, would have us hope not in the faithfulness of a mere man and not in the faithfulness of any woman, but rather in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, our King, who is at work day and night to effect his rule and to perfect his kingdom in us. The Spirit of God will not be undone by your weakness. Because it's in our weakness that God delights to make his strength known. The grace he gives us is favor that we do not deserve. The faith that we are called to exercise is produced in us because of his work. We love, we are told, because he first loved us. And because he loves us. And because he will always love us. The foundations of the kingdom of God will never be moved or shaken. And that includes your life too. The fire of God's judgment may burn against the wicked for their unrepentance, but when God's people stand before him, his fire will only burn away what is unworthy in them so as to purify them and to perfect in grace what he has poured out on them through his own beloved son, Jesus. So here's a few things that I want to say about Paul's confrontation with Peter to conclude with. First, we see that when Paul confronted Peter, He did it because of love. Love drove Paul to confront Peter. Love first for Christ, then for his church, and then for Peter himself. When Paul saw the glory of Christ was under assault, he spoke. When he saw the church splintering into factions, he risked his own reputation and acceptance and spoke up. When he saw his brother standing condemned at and sin. He could not stand silent, but he called him back to the truth. Yes, Paul spoke some strong words, but they were filled with grace, they were filled with hope, and they were filled with love. I know for a fact that Paul loved Peter because of his willingness to confront him with the truth. It would have been so easy to let it go. But Proverbs 27 verses 5 through 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Paul dealt, Paul dealt Peter some faithful wounds because he was a friend and because he was a friend to Christ. And that's something for us to think about. Do you love others, especially the brothers and sisters in this body, enough to be a part of their lives, to know whether or not they're struggling with sin, and then to be able to speak to them lovingly and to confront them if you see that they're out of step with the gospel? Do you love them enough to invest in them that way? I hope you do. I see evidence of that. But I would encourage you to keep doing it. Do more. All too often we fail to speak, I think, because we value our own reputation more than we value our actual brother and sister. Now at the same time, that comes with a caveat, because if you guys start going after each other all the time, that's a problem. <laughs> Let us resolve never to speak words that are not filled with grace and concern for that person. Don't take Paul's example and think that suddenly you are justified in pointing out other people's flaws. Jesus warns us to address the log that is in our own eye before we address the speck that is in our brother's eye. So make sure, before you speak, pass it through this rubric, this matrix, and ask yourself, is this an action of the gospel of grace? Or am I actually serving my own selfish ends of pride and false righteousness? Ask yourself before you speak. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. But don't, don't, don't only listen. Second thing we see here, be on guard and open to correction. Be on guard and be open to correction. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. God calls you to be a part of this body for your own salvation. Brad made that point abundantly clear this morning. I'm so thankful for it. Our hearts are deceitful. They justify our works. And sometimes you need somebody like Paul to say, you are out of line. You stand condemned and you don't see it. Come back to the gospel of grace. If it could happen to Peter and Barnabas, it can happen to you. While we have this sure hope in the gospel of grace that we are saved and that we are still in the process of being saved and that we will be saved, we know that we're still in that process and there's a lot of stuff in us that still needs to be burned out. The Christian life is a journey and no one here is above reproof. No one here is exempt from weakness. So, friends, be open to correction. If a brother or sister confronts you, don't get offended. Take it seriously. And as you examine your life and your heart, repent if you realize you've become out of sync with the gospel of grace. God has put us all in each other's lives for the purpose of building each other up, sharpening each other. Iron sharpens iron. A knife is useless, though, if it won't take an edge when you put it on the grinder. So invest yourselves and be, in, be willing to be invested in third thing to point out here learn to trust this gospel of grace learn to trust this gospel of grace if you find yourself condemned in error and hypocrisy the way Peter did the right response is not total despair it is not despair 
the gospel of grace meets us where we are. It confronts us in our sin, but it also restores us and it points us to Christ who is on his throne, who spilled his precious blood for Peter and for Paul and for you. 